Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. And I can see all the chatters in the chat room right now. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, my guest for tonight's show is Barbara Krauthammer. She is the Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South. She is also co-author with Deborah Willis, Tisch School of Arts from New York University, of Envisioning Emancipation, Black Americans, and the End of Slavery. Professor Krauthammer has also written many articles and book chapters on the subjects of chattel slavery in Indian Territory, African-American, Native American intersections, and African-American women's lives in slavery. Now, in 2007, she received the Letitia Brown Memorial Prize from the Association of Black Women Historians. She has also received awards and funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Stanford University, Yale University, the Institute for Historical Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and the Schoenberg Center for Research and Black Culture. So let me give a warm welcome to Barbara Krauthammer. Barbara, welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for that lovely introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So just talking about this topic, I mean, it's so interesting, black slaves and Indian masters. How did you become interested in this particular subject? I came to the subject through a somewhat roundabout course. When I was in graduate school, I had read a couple of books by historians like Quintard Taylor and Nell Irvin Painter about black people migrating to the Midwest and to the Western states. And so I got interested in thinking about geographic places and sort of conceptual places where the South and the West meet. So I started mm-hmm. researching slavery in Texas, and then I thought, well, what's north of Texas? And, of course, it was Indian territory in the antebellum period. And so I started reading books by Daniel Littlefield and Zeta Purdue on the subject, and it really just caught my attention. Wow. Well, you know, it's a, it's a subject I guess we don't hear as much about as perhaps we could, and You know, there really aren't that many books on this particular aspect of African-American history. So why do you think uh, this is the case? 
Well, for a couple of reasons. I think until still fairly recently in our lifetimes, yours and mine, the subject of slavery and the African-American experience in slavery wasn't widely researched or written about or certainly talked about very much. Um, you know, certainly it wasn't until I got to graduate school that I had the opportunity to immerse myself in courses about African-American life in slavery. Um, so I think in general the field is still young compared to many other fields of study. Um, and this particular aspect of um, African-American slavery in Native American nations I think it's so complicated, and I think it challenges many of the popular and academic um, narratives and stereotypes and myths about black people, about Native American peoples, about Southern history. And so I think it's a, it's a topic that just doesn't fit comfortably all the time in sort of more established ideas about what African-American history and Native American history are like. Um, and I think there's a long history of scholars neglecting the black experience when they look at other people's experiences. And I think for all yeah. those reasons, black people have been written out of so many chapters of American history. Yes, which is... Which is unfortunate, but we're trying to to, to change that uh, to most change definitely. That. Right, yeah. right. I mean, we have a, a comment coming out of the chat. It is is it complicated because five tribes with unique histories were enslavers, and that there is no single story. Um, I think that's certainly part of it, that the experience between the different nations, those five slaveholding nations, um, varied widely in many cases. And because I think for so long the history of slavery and racism in America has been told as a white over black story, and that Native American peoples were written out of that, and so that the black people in Native American contexts were doubly written out in that sense. Yes, which which is unfortunate. I mean, I I looked at your book and I, I pulled a quote, uh, like their white southern counterparts, Indians bought, sold, owned, and exploited black people's labor and and. For, for economic and social gain. And so could you just kind of expand on that? Sure. And that was actually, um, it, I'm in some ways delighted that you picked out that quote because that concept um, was something that was really important to me to examine in this book and to really spend some time delving into that idea. Um, I, In the course of my early research, had read a number of books about Native American history, about Choctaw history, about Chickasaw history, that sort of just mentioned, oh, and they owned slaves too, as though there were something sort of natural and unremarkable about mm -hmm. this ownership of black people. And so I really wanted to spend some time with thinking about what did this mean for peoples who were already themselves in many ways marginalized and exploited, um, to think about then what it meant for them to adopt certain social positions and economic positions of becoming the exploiter mm -hmm. and what that meant for their lives and what it meant for the lives of the people they owned and sold. Right, right. You know, as as you as you speak, the chatters are also posting things in the chat, <laughs> and so <laughs> so uh, you know, there's there's a comment that's saying they're being victims with the removal is widely known, yet the oppression of African slaves is hush. But right. American history is not complete without slavery being mentioned. Yet this is still hidden to this day. Right. I, you know, I, I hope that gradually many, many of us um, working in the National Archives, working in high schools and junior high schools and colleges and universities are bringing this to light, but I think that's right. Um, and for my interests with this book, what I really wanted to show was 
the ways in which slavery was so embedded in these Choctaw and Chickasaw communities and that the understanding that black people, men, women, and children could be brutalized in many ways, physically, emotionally, sexually, and that that was widely accepted as the norm. And I felt like that was a really important part of that particular history and the larger history of the black experience in North America that I wanted to tell, as painful as it is to tell. I thought that it was important to bring it to light. Right, and it and it is extremely painful, but as you said, it's something that uh, needed to be brought to the light. Um, so let's talk about the book. Let's talk about okay. how you uh, have organized the the various chapters and and what we can gain from uh, reading your book. Uh, let's start with with chapter one: Black Slaves and the Masters. What can you sure. say about that chapter? Um, well, so I wanted to begin thinking in the, in the very beginning of the book to sort of raise the question of sort of how does slavery originate in the Native American context and specifically in the context of Choctaw and Chickasaw um, communities. And so one of the things that I try to say, I think, in the beginning is we can't pinpoint that exact light bulb moment when the institution of chattel slavery took off in this context. But we can look back to the colonial period and see moments where Choctaw and Chickasaw warriors and leaders are negotiating with French and British colonial authorities. And increasingly they're negotiating over African captives. Mm -hmm. right? And there's this, I think, increased awareness that in the European colonial context, African captives are being traded as property, not as people, right? And that there's an yes. economic value associated that's really different than earlier forms of captivity in the Native American context. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to get into that to lay the groundwork to really argue, um, as I said a minute ago, to argue that this practice of slaveholding, of owning people as property, of selling children away from their parents, um, wasn't just incidental or the sort of natural outgrowth of participating in economic relations, you know, capitalist economic relations, but resulted from a series of decisions and choices that individuals and groups made. And so mm -hmm. that's really sort of how I wanted to start the book, right, with this very clear argument that this history, you know, is, is a deliberate one, that it originated from calculated decisions. Yes, um, yes. Not, not just, you know, from the ether. Right. And, and go ahead. No, I'm I'm listening. <laughs> oh, okay. And so that, that's how I wanted to start the book. And then I wanted to sort of also set the stage that in the book what I try to do um, is focus on the institution of slavery and the experiences of those people who were enslaved, but also try to paint a broader context of what's happening in Native American nations politically and socially and where the institution of slavery and enslaved people fit both in Native American domestic contexts and also in Native relations with the United States, right? And so struggles between Native governments and the United States government over um, fugitive slaves, right, those people who liberate themselves, struggles mm -hmm. over territory that's considered ripe plantation territory. And so I really wanted to take this particular history of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations and move outward from that to consider a larger southern landscape and then a larger sort of U.S. Um, continental landscape. Okay. Okay. Now there's just a comment coming out of the uh, chat. Sure. Uh, not so much a comment but a question. Uh, okay. What influence did the American loyalists, have on the institution of slavery among the five slaveholding tribes. American loyalists during the revolution, is that what? 
I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about the details of the question, right? American loyalists during the revolution. Yes, um, during the revolution. During the revolution. Um, I think I would need a little bit more information from the question. Can they, if people are listening, I mean, I would love a little bit more detail about that question, and I'm not sure what exactly they mean by influence. Um, certainly one of the things that happens, right, is that um, that loyalists, facilitate the evacuation of enslaved people in many cases from the Deep South. So I'm not sure if that's what the question is about or if there's something else. Well, hopefully the the questioner will uh, elaborate on that hopefully. particular that question. Would be, that would be lovely. Right. Well, let's talk about uh, just enslaved people, missionaries, and slaveholders. Oh, sure. That was one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, I spent a lot of time with the records of um, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, who sent missionaries to many of the southern Indian nations. Um, And one of the interesting things that happened, and productive things for my purposes, was that missionaries were wonderful record keepers. Right, they wrote these yes. extensive diaries and letters to their board officials back home, and letters to relatives, and pieces for newspapers and magazines. And they're constantly counting how many people are coming to their church services, and how many people are coming to Bible study classes and to other school functions. Um, so the missionaries were in this interesting position that, having had contact with Christian enslaved African Americans offered them an opportunity, they hoped, to try to convert Native Americans. Um, So on the one hand, I think missionaries were very solicitous of enslaved people because they imagined using enslaved people as um, an avenue to reach Native Americans to spread both secular education and Christian education. Mm -hmm. Um, And What I found striking was that that was the aspect of this relationship between enslaved people and missionaries that other scholars had commented upon, right? That Mm -hmm. missionaries welcomed black members in their churches and that um, black students were allowed to attend missionary schools. And so I thought that in previous works, the relationship between missionaries and enslaved people had been painted as a... um, kind or benign relationship. And what I found as I spent more time with these missionary records and spent time thinking about the language and the descriptions that missionaries were using um, is that they weren't necessarily benign. You know, Mm -hmm. missionaries, missionaries objected to slavery, but they didn't object to working black men and women to the bone. And they often hired enslaved people from native slaveholders to work at the missions. And they worked, they worked black people hard at the same time that they were saying, oh, we're opposed to slavery. Um, and so I wanted to spend some time with that aspect of black people's lives at the mission stations in the Indian Territory um, mm-hmm. to, to think about that relationship and how missionaries viewed and treated the black men and women who lived and worked among them. But then to think about the flip side of, right, what did black people think that they could extract from missionaries? Yes, and one of, yes. the things that, one of the things that became evident um, was that men and women who worked at the mission stations understood, I think, the potential for gaining their freedom, for using missionary allies to purchase their freedom. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so in some ways it was a relationship that enslaved people were able to turn to their advantage. Yeah. And I really I liked, and it was very important to me to be able to show the ways in which enslaved people understood the political context they lived in and were able very clearly to strategize to take control of their own lives. Yes, yes. Now, there's a question, and it's, uh, are you familiar with the Martin Mission in Holly Springs, Mississippi? And blacks I'm, I'm that worship familiar with, with that. Say it again? Mm-hmm. 
I, I was it, 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 it was just a question that's coming up about the the uh, blacks that worship with their enslavers in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And I am less familiar with Holly Springs than I am um, with with some of the other missions, um, both in Mississippi and then later in Indian Territory. Right. Well, one of the things you mentioned, of course, the, the, the records that were maintained, and, and we will get into discussing the records a little later, but I want to sure. go back to the uh, that first question that was asked, what influence did American loyalists have? And oh, sure. the, uh, the the chatter has written more, uh, oh, stating that whites fighting on the side of the British sought refuge in the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations right. and became part of the mixed-blood elite who intermarried and became leaders and slaveholders in the tribe. Oh, sure. Um, and now I, yeah, now I understand. Um, I think that that is correct. Um, one of the things that I spend a lot of time with throughout the book is considering um, – some of the ways in which Chickasaws and Choctaws identified themselves and their kin, both their ancestors and their descendants, as Indian. Um, and so one of the things that I tried not to do in the book was attribute the beginnings of slaveholding and that bedrock racist ideology that slavery rested on, well, I did not want to attribute that solely to the Europeans who settled and intermarried with Native Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to say this was the product of an outside influence on, on Native communities, but I really wanted to look at how Native peoples people who identified themselves as natives, regardless of their ancestry, contemplated and adopted those ideas of anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, one of the things that I think I say very explicitly in the book is certainly those descendants of wealthy Europeans, be they loyalists or later generations of Euro-Americans, Certainly, those descendants who identify as Choctaw and Chickasaw um, inherited terrific wealth from their slaveholding ancestors. Okay. You know, there's no doubt about the fact that that, um, th- that that heritage facilitated the expansion of slavery. But I was reluctant to attribute slavery primarily or exclusively to European um, Incomers, is, is, is that a word? Um, those Europeans <laughs> who married into Native communities. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and okay. continue this discussion. Just a quick break. and beyond blog talk radio this is your host bernice alexander bennett and you can join me every thursday at 9 p.m eastern time where i will have an expert to share resources stories and answer your burning genealogy and history questions remember all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history 
All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Barbara Krauthammer, the author of Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South. And she has at least provided us with a brief description of how she has organized the book by sharing with us the Black Slaves Indian Masters, the first chapter, and then the second chapter, Enslaved People, Missionaries, and Slaveholders. Now, let's continue this discussion, Barbara, about your book by talking about slave resistance, sectional crisis, and uh, political factionism in the antebellum Indian territory. What can you tell us about this particular section? Sure. So that section focuses really on the ways that enslaved people sought to challenge their master's control over their daily lives, um, some of the ways in, in which people tried to organize in efforts perhaps to overthrow or undermine the institution of slavery as a whole. And here in this chapter was one place that I really wanted to also try to illuminate some of the points of connection between enslaved people in Indian territory and those who were enslaved in the United States. And to think about how those connections, whether they were networks of communication or people offering each other refuge as they were escaping from bondage, liberating themselves, and fleeing from one destination to another, um, and to think about how their actions, the actions of enslaved people, um, forced both Native American leaders and Euro-American leaders, right, U.S. politicians, to confront this fact that enslaved people were unwilling to submit to bondage on either side of that U.S.-Indian territory boundary. Mm-hmm. And so, um, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. no, and so I was going to say, and so that chapter then continues up through the 1850s as um, – um, as the crisis in the United States over the expansion of slavery is really coming to a head, and then the chapter ends with thinking about some of the ways that enslaved people in Indian territory um, participate in sort of fanning the flames of Native American concerns about U.S. colonialism in their territory um, as a response to enslaved people's resistance and uprisings. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we move into the whole Treaty of 1866, and I really want you to say, uh, that for those who are not familiar with the Treaty of 1866, just to, just to say more about that. Sure. So one of the things that is fascinating, just eternally fascinating to me about this material, um, is that in the case of the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nations, slavery is not legally abolished until almost a full year after slavery is abolished in the United States, right? Slavery ends in the United States in 1865, and it's not until 1866 that the Choctaws and Chickasaws enter a treaty with the United States in which they consent to the legal abolition of slavery. And we know from a range of records, many in the National Archives, that in fact many Native slaveholders continued to threaten and terrorize and sell enslaved people in that, 18, that year between 1865 and 1866, that there really was a yeah. refusal to acknowledge the end of slavery. I mean, yeah. so this chapter looks at the treaty, looks at the debates and conflicts over the treaty, and also, um, again, tries to look at sort of where enslaved people are in this moment of real uncertainty, where mm-hmm. the Civil War has ended, but it's not clear what's going to happen in these um, still semi-autonomous, politically autonomous Native nations. Right. Uh, you know, we I'm, I'm seeing questions coming through, and I know we, we're into 1866. There's a question that mentions just the Cherokee Slave Rebellion of 1842, which has taken oh, us sure. back. And right, right. Uh, what impact did the rebellion have on slaves of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations? 
Um, I what I have been able to determine, and in many cases, you know, some of these observations and conclusions, I'm sure, as many of your listeners and chatters know, right? We have to sort of deal with impressionistic evidence. But I think it's pretty clear that there were fairly extensive networks of communication among enslaved people throughout Indian Territory, right, in the Cherokee Nation, linking them to Choctaw and Chickasaw um, Nation. And so I think that certainly through the 1840s, there are similar moments of unrest um, in the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation. And so I think there is that we can sort of look at the region as a whole and say that certainly people are communicating, certainly people are aware of those who are able to liberate themselves by escape and by insurrection in neighboring areas. Yes, and so we're moving back to 1866, and and there's another question coming out of the chat, and thank you, Chatters, for your questions. Uh, Do you think that the Treaty of 1866 for the Chata and Chickasaw was an ambiguous document when it came to adopting their former slaves? Um, I think there were many points of ambiguity, and I think there were many points um, where it, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm reluctant to say federal officials acted in bad faith, but in hindsight, you know, there's so many points that you read in this treaty and think it is hard for me to imagine a scenario in which federal commissioners and federal officials would have shown up and said, okay, we're ready to abide by the provisions that we have set forth in this treaty. Um, So I think it's ambiguous for that reason. And I think it's also ambiguous because there's some pretty clear documentary evidence um, that points to Choctaw and Chickasaw leadership's role in drafting some of that treaty language. And and there, too, I, I, I can only imagine that some of that language reflected more people's larger aspirations than what, again, in hindsight, we might say was a more realistic assessment of life on the ground. Yes, yes. And so what do you think, I mean, the attitudes of the Chickasaw and Choctaw had toward uh, the former slaves after 1866? Because we have the treatment now. I mean, what, what what's going on? Right. Well, one of the things um, – that I, I think is pretty clear is that as a, across the former Confederacy, right, across all of those southern states, um, I think there's a period of real uncertainty on the part of former slaveholders. I think there's a, an extended climate of um, continued hostility and resentment and, um, and again, a, a real sense of uncertainty about what this so-called loss of property, you know, meaning the, the loss of the people they've owned, um, what that will mean for former slaveholders' wealth, what it means for their prestige, what it means for their political authority. And so I think there really is this extended period of um, great tension and hostility. And what was so fascinating to me that I didn't necessarily expect to see was that in the Choctaw and Chickasaw case, as among many white Southerners, there was also a real um, romantic nostalgia for the slave past, right? I mean, this real sort of clinging to the memory of, you know, as as we say, right, that moonlight and magnolia fantasy of plantation uh-huh. days gone by. And so, and I think that, that what that reflects, right, is that real unwillingness to see seriously contemplate black people as social and political and economic equals in the society. Uh And I think that that was a struggle that continued for generations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your, your, your next chapter, the Freedmen's political organizing and the ongoing struggles uh, and I'm going to open the, the line for others to to call in in a few minutes. But what okay. can you tell us about the Freedmen's? I mean, just what what happened? Because we're dealing uh, with some serious stuff here. 
<laughs> right. And one of the things that I loved and that I was really um, happy to have the opportunity to write about was that sense that we see from the antebellum period continuing and growing just so beautifully after emancipation of that sense of the black men and women had from the very beginning of their right to define themselves and to control the terms of their lives, whether it was the terms of their labor, whether it was the terms of their social organizations and social relations, um, whether it was where they lived and how they lived, um, and that real sense of a, a sense of dignity and a sense of hope and a sense of their own power. And so um, one of the things that happens is that people organize, right? And people organize with very clear political interests and agendas and a real determination to carry through their vision of equality and political rights and social rights. Um, okay. And so I love that. I thought that was just some of the most... Um, some of the most moving material that I encountered were some of the petitions um, and letters written by freedmen and freed women and um, and their communities. Oh yes, and and I'm going to ask you about you know some of the the resources. But before I ask you this question, I want to just acknowledge the the research and work of Terry Ligham and Angela oh, sure. Walton Raji on, on the Freedmen. And, and thanks to Terry, uh, we have been made aware of the Equity Case 7071. And I'm really right. hoping that Terry will call in to tell us about the case of Betty Ligham and her $15 million lawsuit on April 18, right. 1907. So, Terry, if you're, if you're on and, and you'd like to call in, uh, please do so, as well as others with your questions and comments. You can call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to um, to uh, and you'll you'll I'll see you when you when you call in. Uh but as we wait for for Terry to call in, uh there's a question, were you aware of or uh, able to identify freedmen leaders in the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation? Um certainly, and I I have um many individuals who appear throughout the second half of the book. Um I am not, I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, right, I'm a historian, not a genealogist, um, and so I'm perpetually in awe of genealogists' ability to trace individuals and reconstruct family histories. Um, and so, but that was not so much my goal in this book, but certainly there were many um, Many widely acknowledged leaders, right, people who are acknowledged by their communities and surrounding communities as leaders. Um, and then there were many other people who came across the pages to me as leaders on individual plantations, right, leaders within extended family groups. Um, so there are many names and many individuals in this book um, of people who really assumed that role of leading their communities and families into the future. Right. And, you know, one of the things you did say, and this is, I guess, where where the historians and the genealogists uh, really can come together uh, to to just paint this huge big picture uh, oh, yeah. Because indeed, the genealogists are tracing tracing their ancestors, and so I do see a caller calling in. And uh, okay, you're live. You have a question or a comment? Well, you requested that Terry called in, so Terry complied with your wish. Uh, well, hello, <laughs> Terry. Thank you so How much you doing, for baby? calling in. Oh, just great. And Terry, uh, many listeners may not be aware of Equ Equity Case 7071. And so would you please share with us uh, this case of your ancestor, Betty Ligham, and, and tell us about what happened. Well, a lot of it has to do with identity. Uh, the case was filed initially by about 1,500 people. 
who claimed to have some type of Choctaw or Chickasaw ancestry. Uh, in the course of that, um, I believe it was 1896, a few of them posted or uh, su submitted some applications for citizenship in their nation of their birth based on their um, ancestry. As a result, uh, when it came to the Dawes Commission uh, enrollment uh, process, these people wanted to exert their rights as citizens so they could receive the 320 acres of land as opposed to the 40 acres of land that the freedmen were receiving. Uh, in just about every case, their uh, applications were denied um, because the tribes, and what I found interesting in uh, the author's book was that the tribes and the Dawson Commission wanted to uh, determine a person's race by matrilineal descent as opposed to their actual genealogy and ancestry. And so as a basis for determining their race on their mother, each of these individuals were determined to be freedmen and had no Indian blood whatsoever. The case uh, wound its way through the system for quite a few years and until 1907, prior to Oklahoma becoming a state. Um, it was filed and wound its way all the way to the Supreme Court and never got heard. Um, the lawyers for the uh, applicants failed to file a brief. The Supreme Court uh, dismissed the case, and to this date, that case has never been determined whether or not these people should have been um, determined to be uh, Choctaw or Chickasaw and possess the blood of their fathers. So that, in a nutshell, is the case. Uh, at the time, the, the case was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, based on the amount of the land that they would have received, which at that time would have been $15 million. And I guess in today's uh, dollars, you're probably talking about half a billion so uh, it was a very significant case. Uh, it had a lot to do with identity, and what we see today, people are constantly uh, debating uh, whether or not they have Indian blood or Indian identity. And here's a yeah. case of thousands of people who may have a claim for that, but because of the way the system was set up, that claim may never actually ever be heard. Right, which is which is so unfortunate. I mean, I've read the case and I've certainly followed you, and so thank you so much for for calling in and sharing that information with everyone, so that they could be aware of the the role uh, Betty Ligham played, and uh, you know, with this lawsuit. And unfortunately, because it was never filed, it never went through. But thank well, you, you know, so I, very I think much. The case, I think the case goes beyond that because. When you're talking about um, identity issues, and I, and I think that's what the author's uh, book was dealing with, I think, at some point, um, these are issues that the, that happened then that really have a base and an influence on what's happening today. Today. And yet mm -hmm. uh, people look at these cases and they kind of poo-poo it because, you know, it's just, oh, black people trying to be Indian. Well, I think it goes a lot deeper than that because you're talking about political and economic development. You're talking about 320 acres worth of land, and at that time, that was powerful. And I think had these people, or even the freedmen in general, been incorporated into the tribes as equals, I think the landscape of Oklahoma would be entirely different today. Because yeah, that was one of the things that the tribes were afraid of, that the black people would have such an influence in their tribes that at some point they were considered a black tribe and not an Indian tribe. So, again, we right. come back to identity. Well, Terry, Barbara has a, a comment. Right. I, so, Terry, this is Barbara. First of all, it's nice to meet you over the phone. I've known your work online for quite a long time. Um, oh, but I couldn't agree with you more that, that this is about identity. And I think, you know, you're right as well that people today say, oh, you know, this happened 100 years ago and this was just black people trying to cash in on something. And that people lose sight um, as you suggest, of the larger context of U.S. imperialism against, yeah. or colonialism yeah. against the Native nations, and that this was really part of a larger concerted effort to strip black people of any access to property, yeah. right, at the same time of stripping na the Native nations of their lands, too, that there really is, you know, a, a much larger history. And I think you're absolutely right that people don't, 
don't necessarily have a, a, a fuller understanding of what happened in that moment and the lasting consequences. And I think that's why I, I, I sometimes feel frustrated because, and I think uh, there was another uh, um, writer, I think her name was Dally Joy. I think she kind of really hit the nail on the head when she basically said, these tribes don't want to be associated with black people at all okay? because that diminished them as Indians. And yet they don't right. see where they have a shared history that needs to really be looked at, discussed, and really come together to try to work these issues out. Right. And until right. we, until they do that, and, and we, I remember Angela, I went to um, a conference in uh, Muskogee, and it was about meeting people halfway on the bridge. It was kind of like the uh, analogy. And today we just don't have that kind of uh, relationship. And yeah. as a result, Many people are confused by their connection to the tribes and to each other. Right. Yes. Right. Right. You're right. Well, thank well, you so a much for calling in. Hopefully, I'll get a book from you because I really want to check out your sources and your footnotes. Okay. Well, well you so thank you for me. bringing that because we're going to start talking about the sources. So, why don't okay. you share with us, Barbara, some of the sources that you. Uh, used in and to uh, compile your book and your chapter. Oh, sure. So I used a wide range of sources, and I really tried to cast as wide a net as I could. Um, so some of the sources I used, I'm sure many people, many listeners and um, people online will be familiar with, I used a lot of um, U.S. government documents, congressional records, um, U.S. military records, especially from that period of removal. I used, as I mentioned earlier, um, the records of missionaries, both individual missionaries and then the church records, um, the larger denominational records. I used um, the records of individual Native American uh, plantation owners and slaveholders, right, their okay. personal correspondence um, and their plantation business records. Um, I used newspapers. I mean, there's just so many wonderful sources in Oklahoma at the Historical Society and at the University of Oklahoma. So a lot of newspapers um, and then published sources like travelers' accounts and diaries. Um, and I also used records from U.S. abolitionists, both black and white abolitionists, who were interested in that experience of slavery in Indian Territory. So things mm -hmm. like the Frederick Douglass paper or um, some of the papers from black communities in Canada that were writing about um, slavery and black people in Indian territory. So I tried mm -hmm. to really use a range, um, a range of types of documents. Well, there's a question about plantation records. Where did you get the plantation records from? <laughs> Oh, so those are mostly came from Oklahoma, from the University of Oklahoma, um, and also from the Gilcrease Institute, uh, mainly the records from Peter Pitchlin's family, um, uh -huh. which are just volumes and volumes of papers written by Peter Pitchlin, written by his children, written by his father, his mother, his brothers, um, and so from that, you could really get a picture of a lot of wealthy Choctaws because he was in correspondence with so many prominent Choctaw slaveholders. And he okay. was in correspondence with prominent Chickasaw slaveholders. So, and in many cases, both sides of the correspondence have been preserved. Mm-hmm. Well, that is really good. But tell us, I mean, when you you were, you know, looking at these different uh, sources. What what scholars or uh, other books help you to just think about how to write your book? Sure. Um, well, I was fortunate as I was working on this to be in the company of some great friends and colleagues like Taya Miles and Celia Naylor and David Chang and Claudia Sant and Cersei Sturm, all of whom have written about um, African-American life in Indian Territory in one variety or another. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, together and together we authored some pieces, some articles and chapters for other publications. And so I was really fortunate to have a community of scholars 
And over the years, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to go to some Freedmen descendants meetings and conferences in Oklahoma and to meet the descendants of Freedmen and have that more personal experience of talking to people about family history and personal history and memory. Um, so, so that group of, scholars, of younger scholars, and then certainly people like Theda Purdue and Clara Sue Kidwell um, and Ned Blackhawk, um, a range of people in Native American history and a range of Native American scholars were terrifically supportive and helpful over the years. Oh, okay. And so as you went through, went to places, you talked to people, what what did you learn that surprised you? Um, this is kind of a typical question I ask people, too. <laughs> what surprised no, no, you? And it's, it's a great question. And two, two things surprised me. About the history, I had not expected to find as many points of connection between the enslaved communities in the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations and enslaved communities in both the, in the southern states, you know, places in Georgia and South Carolina and Mississippi. Um, and I was also delighted to see, as I mentioned earlier, the extent of um, exchange and sometimes contact between free black abolitionists in the state and, its, and enslaved people in Indian Territory. So that was the uh-huh. first thing that surprised me. Um, and I think the second thing that really made an impression on me was, as Terry suggested earlier, um, how present this history is for so many people. Yes, and 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 to and to have the opportunity to talk with descendants of the Graysons, descendants of the Vans, um, you know, to be able to go to Oklahoma and meet descendants and hear that history told as a type of living memory was a really mm-hmm. powerful experience for me, and I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity. Um, usually as scholars, you know, we sit in the library and we talk to our colleagues and we talk to our students, but we don't always have that opportunity to talk to descendants who have preserved memory as well as history. Yes, yes. And and it's just something that, you know, one of the things that genealogists attempt to do is to preserve and to tell their stories. Yeah. And that's part yeah. of that, that, that memory. So I'm glad that you had that opportunity to talk to some of the descendants. Well, what do you hope? I mean, that, this is probably a question I should have asked you when we first started, but I'm <laughs> going to ask you now. But what do you sure. hope people will gain from reading your book? Well, I hope um, in the broadest sense that it enhances understandings and ideas about the complexity and the richness of the black experience in America, you know, in Indian territory and in America at large. Um, I hope, and I hope it prompts people to think, um, again, as Terry mentioned about this idea of identity and how, how people identify themselves based on personal history and group history um, and how valuable and important that can be. Um, and lastly, I think what I hope people get is a sense of um, how intertwined all of these experiences, the Native American experience, the black American experience, how central they are to what we call U.S. history, right? There would be yes. no U.S. history without black people and without Indian peoples. And so I think that I hope that this book really brings some of that um, to people's attention and, you know, piques people's interest in some of this material. Yes, and, and, it's, and it's something that we perhaps need to talk more about. Because we yes. just don't do it. I mean, we, we really yeah. don't. Well, we do have a caller, area code 443. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, hi. Uh, good evening, Bernice, and good evening, uh, Dr. Crosshammer. This is Angela Walton-Raji. How are you? Oh, hello. Hello, Angela. Hi. 
I've been enjoying listening to uh, the discussion going on. And I guess I uh, have a question. Uh, well, first of all, I was curious. Uh, you mentioned going to Oklahoma, meeting the Graysons, the Vans. I can name the people you probably met. Have you <laughs> met and did you interact with any Choctaw and Chickasaw freedmen descendants, especially in light of the text uh, in your book? Um, did you meet any Choctaw and Chickasaw freedmen, and, and were you able to glean anything? That's my, I guess, part one of my question. Um, sure, and, and the answer is yes. Um, and, you know, ra- rather than name names, right, I mean, I will say yes, I, I did. I think I spoke to um, descendants maybe from all five nations now that I think about it. I was going to say maybe without, with the exception of the Seminole, but I don't think that's true. Um, so I, I think I spoke over the years with descendants of, from freedmen in all five nations. Um, and I, maybe to anticipate a question, Angela, you know, chose not to use those personal contacts in the book. No, I, I fully understand. Oh, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, yeah, and... Um, but yes, I did. I mean, and I have, you know, have really had the benefit, I think, of of having that sort of personal reflection on families like the Loves and the Pitchlands, um, mm-hmm. to name a couple. Um, so, in preparation for the book, you did have a chance to interact then with them as well, which is cool. yes. Yeah. Um, okay, the second part of my question, which I also had typed on the screen, where particularly do the genealogical scholars, and I know that there is this big sort of void between the two entities. There's this sort of belief that genealogists are, you know, just trying to collect names and build a pretty family tree. But the stories, we find the stories. We're the ones also reading your books, going through the footnotes, and saying, wait a minute, there's some other stories. You know, the the largest plantation, Robert Jones, 500 slaves, and yet they they think in the archaeology department at OU, they think they have found his estate. How can you lose at a plantation with over 500 slaves? I guess the question is, we're asking questions, have been asking questions for certainly, I know Terry and I have been asking questions way before the famous conference at Dartmouth. Where do we meet? Where do the genealogical scholars uh, who are looking at this unwritten history, we're the ones throwing up the maps every time there's that slavery map and there's that big hole on top of Texas, the historians don't address that. We address it because we know that 10,000 people are enslaved right north of Texas. Where do we meet and how can we collaborate and work together? Um, well, let me say, Angela, on a personal level, you and I can meet anytime, any place you tell me, and I will show up, and you and I can meet and collaborate. Um, I have, as I think I communicated to you recently, long been um, – an admirer of your work and have certainly, you know, for my own interest and edification, paid careful attention to um, your websites and your research. Um, so, but, so speaking for myself, you know, I think genealogists have always um, been tremendously important for helping me think about, right, these very personal connections, right, of who knew whom and where were they and where did they go. Um, in terms of the material I, I write and publish, um, you know, I'm not a genealogist by training, and so I'm certainly indebted to your research and find it useful to then go and to benefit from that research and then go in my own direction um, with the writing. But I think you're absolutely right in general. I mean, the genealogists have a wealth of knowledge and insight and resources um, that all researchers should really be indebted to. Right. And and this is this is probably coming to the end of, of our discussion tonight, but it's just just wonderful to have you as a historian say that you're ready, you want to come to the table, and the genealogists are there, and they're saying, yes, we want to be at the table so that we can share what we both have to share with each other. So this is has been a very interesting call tonight. Barbara, and I just want to thank you. Do you have any parting words to the chatters, the callers, before we start talking about what's going to happen in the month of October? Oh, no, I just want to thank everybody for participating and thank Angela and Terry for calling in. Um, That was a real treat for me. 
And um, to thank you for having me as a guest. This was really lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Well, everybody, I am so excited about October. You know I say that every single month, but October's lineup is just fantastic. So let me tell you about what's happening on October 3rd. We will. The topic is slavery, freedom, and reunion in a colonial Connecticut town with Grant Hater Menzies, Daryl D'Angelo, and Donald Roddy. So let me just give you just a little bit, because I can't tell you everything. But in June of 1759 in Norwich, Connecticut, a businessman by the name of Benajad Bushnell sold Guy Drought. Now, he was a slave of African ancestry, and he was sold to Sarah Powell's. The Caucasian woman Drott had possibly married. Well, ironically, this deed freed Drock from Bushnell's control, but not from slavery. Well, in March 2012, descendants of Guy and Sarah and of Benajai Bushnell came together in Norwich for the first time in over two centuries. And so what you will hear next Thursday will be the descendants discussing the meeting. They will talk about slavery, and this is going to be a very interesting show. Well, on October the 10th, we're going to have Dr. Vladimir Alexandrov, and he is going to talk about his book, The Black Russian. He will explore the process of researching and writing this compelling story. And I don't know how many of you even know about the story of Frederick Bruce Thomas. He was born in 1872 to former slaves and spent his youth on his family farm in Mississippi. Well, he left Mississippi and he eventually ended up in Russia. And so we're going to hear about what that experience was like for Frederick Bruce Thomas, a black man in Russia. Then on October the 17th, I'm very happy that we will have four, excuse me, five authors who will come on and talk about African Americans of Alexandria, Virginia, the beacons of light in the 20th century. My guests will be Char McCargo Barr, Krista Waters, Audrey P. Davis, Gwendolyn Brown Henderson, and James E. Henson, Sr. Now, this group came together to document the history of African Americans who were agents of change in Alexandria, 20th century African American community. Well, October the 24th is also exciting because we will talk to Rhoda Green, and she will share with us the Barbados and Carolinas connection. Now, most Barbadians today are unaware or disinterested about their linkages to the Carolinas. However, Rhoda Green recognizes that the past impacts the present each day, and the present, however, can promote forgetfulness, ignorance, and sometimes denial. Well, she is the inspiration behind the development of the Barbados and Carolina legacy, and I'm just looking so forward to having her on my show. And then I have a special it's on October the 28th. It is a Monday, not a Thursday, and it's at 3 o'clock. And we will have Cece Moore and Shannon Christmas. They're coming back on to discuss strategies for using autosomal DNA to resolve your genealogical problems. Now, if you remember, we had Shannon and Cece on before, and they blew up the line, and <laughs> we had calls coming in, and the chatters were asking questions. So this is going to be a really exciting show. So I look forward to all of you joining me in October for just a fun, fun show. So I want to say just Thank you so much, and good night, Barbara Crothammer. Thank you for joining us tonight. And that was remember, my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, 
such a pleasure. Your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night. Good night, Barbara. Good night.